This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Imagine having to move an intensive care unit filled with patients across the island. That's what happened recently with our native snails. Build as a historic move a motorcade, a caravan of the rarest and endangered native snails, uh, snails made the trip across the H3 in cars. It was the largest mass migration of laboratory-reeled native Hawaiian snails, and we paid a visit to their more secure and spacious new home in Pearl City. We first met conservation biologist David Sisko years ago when a hurricane threatened the remote laboratory rearing facility in Manawili. Sisko is with the Department of Land and Natural Resources. He says he can breathe easier now that their precious cargo is in a more protected facility. Twice, under threat of storms, staff had to evacuate the rare snails to a downtown office and spend the night tending to them. Sisko walks us around the new lab to introduce us to some of the rarest of the rare. At one time, a particular striped species was down to about six snails and is now back up at 60. In this cage here, we have Acatonella fulgens, and it's arguably one of the rarest animals in the world. These are town snails, so they would have existed in Manoa Valley, Palolo, Niu Valley, anywhere on the ridges and summit areas in the greater Honolulu area. And they're really pretty. I mean, they have a turban shape, and it's white and brown. They're white and brown striped. We've got some that are yellow and some that almost look plaid. Yeah, they're really variable, really beautiful snail. Historically, they were all kinds of beautiful colors. And they're actually a species that was heavily used in lay. I think that is because they were close to a population center and they were relatively lower down than some of our species, so they were easy to get to. And so this particular type of snail was brought over in this massive caravan earlier this month into this new facility. Yes. every single individual in the world was in a car driving over H3 as we came to our new lab. Yep. And so to think that all these precious snails, this precious cargo, if something happened, they could have been all wiped out in one fell swoop. Yeah, you know, it, it was a nerve-wracking experience for us, having so many precious public trust resources and vehicles at the same time. We had to basically think of every bad thing that could possibly happen and how we could mitigate for that. You've got these snails in special containers, in special chambers. Talk about the conditions that you have to keep them in. Most of the species we rear are from upper elevation habitats, 2,000 feet to 4,000 feet. So it's cooler, it's wetter, more humid, and the snails need those conditions to thrive. And so it's much warmer down here where we are closer to sea level. And so basically our environmental chambers are mimicking summit habitat. So it's, it's much cooler. We have a day and night cycle. Humidity goes up and down, similar to how it would in, in the natural environment. We have a misting system that is piped in to each individual cage and periodically through the day they get the equivalent of cloud mist and at night it gets mistier and, and wetter just like it would on the summit. This encourages normal behavior and that way when we release them back out into the wild they, you know, they're accustomed to those conditions. So essentially though, high maintenance like Goldilocks. Yeah, yeah, they're just like Goldilocks. They're pretty high maintenance animals to take care of. They require constant care. Cisco's team works diligently feeding and counting the snails day in and day out. Did you know that some species lay eggs and others give birth to live mini-me's? Well, such are the details in the secret, serious life of snails. Here's Cisco giving us context about the integral part that they play in our forest habitat and the researchers doing behind-the-scenes work to save snails. Our facility is a, it's a hospital for species, and so we currently rear 38 species from five islands, and 
most of them are extinct in the wild, and if they're not, they are very close to being extinct in the wild. And so how many are we nurturing here? How many patients do we have? It's a revolving door because we are releasing snails constantly and bringing some new ones in, but currently we have over 8,000 snails in the facility here. So you're a snail bank. We are, yeah, there, you know, there are no uh, snail seed banks there, but we are essentially the equivalent of that. Unfortunately, you can't, like a seed, like a plant seed, you can't put it in suspended animation in a freezer or, or some kind of storage. They have to be kept alive. The population has to be kept going. So you can think of these as like little tiny embers of a once, you know, roaring fire of a healthy species. And now we're just trying to keep those embers around and, and restart the restart the flame. So it's a big undertaking. And, you know, since we first talked, you know, you folks were being threatened by a hurricane that was headed your way and you were in a trailer. And the, the concern was that you could get easily blown away or blown over and the, the snails would not be in a very good spot. But you folks had to evacuate a couple of times. We did, we had to evacuate twice and in a hurry too. While everyone else was, you know, tying down their houses and their outdoor furniture, we were quickly ushering snails over the poly into downtown Honolulu into our administration building, which is a concrete, substantial building. Okay, so you were down there in these office buildings and you were prepared to stay overnight. Yep, our team, we, it was myself and a different time it was one of our other technicians who stayed there with the snails and we were prepared. Luckily, the, you know, the hurricanes didn't manifest and we were able to take the snails back. But if they did, we would have planned to stay with them until we could get them somewhere more permanent. So in this new facility, you've got more elbow room and the ability to expand? Yeah, we have more, more elbow room, that's for sure, more areas to work, um, and we have more space to bring in critical species. So just for background, the Hawaiian Islands had over 750 different land snail species. Almost all of them exist nowhere else in the world. And unfortunately, due to introduced predators, and climate change impacts, and some historical impacts like overcollection for their beautiful shells, about half of those are extinct already and we have about a hundred species that will be gone you know within the next decade without significant conservation intervention like our facility here we're gonna have to bring them in and so we're really trying to build capacity to deal with that onslaught and keep these species around and you folks are working with uh, other researchers you know, at uh, Bishop Museum uh, you know at HPU just because you know we need to know more about how to keep these snails alive. Yeah, so this is definitely not just a state-led effort. This is a partnership effort. We've realized, you know, that this is not just happening in one area. It's across islands. To pull this off, to save that many species, requires a partnership effort. And so we're working with private landowners. We're working with researchers at Bishop Museum and the UH system, the Honolulu Zoo, the Army. We really have a great network of researchers and wildlife biologists that are all really invested in this and um, helping to build capacity and really make a positive impact. And talk about that because we just met the folks up uh, at Schofield who are working with plants, but they also keep an eye out for snails. 
The Army has a natural resource team and they do conservation for snails in the Waianae Mountains. So some of the species we work with, they also work with. One of our components to the captive rearing is putting them back out, right? And we put them back out into protected areas that are fenced off to keep the predators out. And the Army is the one that came up with that design. The snail jail. Yeah, we like to call them Kipuka Kahuli. <laughs> We're trying to rebrand, but yeah, yeah, snail jail. And so, so describe to our listeners what that means. So you can imagine a, a relatively small fence unit. They're smaller than an acre. These are up in mountainous areas and snail habitat. They're a tall, solid wall fence, and that's intended for it to be slippery. So rodents and Jackson's chameleons, two of the major predators of snails, can't climb in. They've got a rolled hood at the top. Gravity works on our side. You know, rats can't get over that rolled hood. But the worst predator of all is the rosy wolf snail. And this is a predatory snail that was brought here by the Territorial Department of Agriculture back in the 1950s as a biocontrol for giant African snails, which everyone has those in their yard. To keep those snails out, we have, we have three barriers on the fence. One of them is a angled skirt. It's at a 15 degree angle. It, it goes around the whole circumference. The rosy wolf snails have a hard time getting, getting under there and maneuvering, they get stuck. But if they get over that, we have another shelf that sticks out with pokey copper wire mesh. It's also pointed down, so gravity kind of works on our side. It's, they don't like it, it's pokey. But if they get over that, we electrocute them. So these are like Godzilla snails, I guess, if you will. <laughs> yeah, you can, you know, often we find dozens of them under the angle barrier. They get stuck. It's almost like they're trying to storm the castle. It's bad, yeah. Well, just recently, I think Florida put out a big alert because they found these giant snails from Africa, I think. They're, they're huge. We have giant African snails everywhere here, and our snails that we're keeping are not giant African snails. Everyone thinks they have our rare snails in their yard, but they don't. <laughs> they have giant African snails, and they do. They'll eat your flowers, they'll eat your crops. They, um, at one time, they were a significant agricultural pest when they were first introduced, which is why there was so much effort to find a biocontrol to try and control them. Do we have these up in those areas where we have the snail jails? Giant African snails are largely in lower elevation agricultural urban areas. They are not up on our summits, but the rosy wolf snail is now on all main Hawaiian islands and is up in some of our most, most remote forest reserves, unfortunately. Okay, so they've got targets on their backs from where you sit. Um, yeah, they're very difficult to deal with. They're very cryptic. Removing them from a small fence unit requires manual labor. Like we have to just physically search through the leaf litter over and over again for hundreds of hours to find them all. And these enclosures, so who maintains them? It depends. Our, our team maintains quite a few. The Army Natural Resources Program has quite a few of them that they maintain on Lanai, Pulama Lanai maintain several and we're building some on Maui and I just found out we got funding for one on Big Island just today I got news. We're really you know we're taking the technology that the army came up with to try and save these snails and we're helping disseminate that information and get it out to partners and try and get these fences built fast. So the, the short-term outlook the five to ten year outlook we're rushing around to try and keep these animals on earth and that's our goal and that's going to involve captive rearing and other stopgap measures like getting these fence units up and getting them back into fences. But the long-term outlook would be to try and control predators in larger ecosystem areas and the snails would be able to not have to be, you know, behind a fence, ideally. So I, I think the long-term trajectory would be to try and have snails back out on the landscape where they belong. 
And then what about climate change? How does that affect your plan of action? Great question. Climate change is really screwing everything up. So snails, unlike a bird, can't fly to a different area when it becomes uncomfortable, right? It's pretty much stuck where, where it has been for eons. They move very slowly. They can't disperse. And so particularly for our lower islands like Kauai and Oahu, the outlook for the leeward side, it's going to get much drier and our summit areas are going to get much less rain potentially. And so you can imagine these species that are summit adaptive to a cold, wet summit are going to get pushed off the summit and there's nowhere, they can't go up, there's nowhere for them to go. And so we're working with researchers at UH and we're trying to understand what those potential impacts could be and where they can survive and that's where we're putting fence units. So it's not all bad news, it's just gonna be changing and we have to facilitate their migration to a better place. That was Dave Sisko of the Department of Land and Natural Resources talking about a new laboratory in Pearl City, which is a new home for our native snails. Tomorrow we head to Bishop Museum to learn about a million dollar grant to advance snail studies as part of our coverage on Snail Week. Support for HPR comes from the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, offering guidance on how to help babies sleep safely by always placing baby on their back with a fitted sheet but no toys, blankets, or pillows. Learn more at cpsc.gov. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we catch up with the True Initiative and Transform Hawaii Government. We'll also hear about their partnership to organize a second annual Cloud Innovation Summit. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC, designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. raises of up to 64% for Honolulu City Council members and city administrators riled many taxpayers. Now the issue is where to find the money to fund the hikes. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Ben Angrone is on the line today. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Catherine. Hope you had a great holiday yesterday. Yes, I did, and I hope you did, too. <laughs> uh, I did definitely got some sunburn. Yes, and, you know, the uh, I, I know there are uh, some of your... Uh, uh, your uh, uh, fans of the Civil Beat, you know, uh, online service who are kind of riled up and and burning up over this issue of pay raises. Uh, the headline says they weren't included in the city budget. Now what? <laughs> so tell us about that. Yeah, it's a sort of interesting thing. So there are about, I think there's three different budgets that the city council has to actually approve for the city budget to be running. And so Two of those budgets, the legislative budget and the executive operating budget, are where these pay raises would go into ordinarily. Uh, this year, those raises were not included in the budget, and so per the charter, the city charter, uh, the salary commission's recommendations are going to 
like kick in for this upcoming fiscal year, regardless of whether they are included in the budget or not. So what that means is that officials will have to find the money from somewhere that's already in the budget. And so that's the task ahead of them right now. And the answer that I could tell is that they don't know where that's going to come from. So it doesn't have to be some. Oh, sorry. So, so is a just a timing snafu, a hiccup there? It's it's sort of an interesting thing. So, if uh, for those who were paying attention throughout the whole past couple months of debate about this, uh, so the way so the budget chair for the city council, Councilmember Radiant Cordero, and the vice chair of the budget committee, Councilmember Matt Wire, they could have put these in uh and so the fact that these raises were not included is because they were not put in and so if you were to ask them which i did uh they said that the reason that 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 they were not put in was because timing wise like you mentioned it was sort of a sort of weird timing and so what they were saying was you know the commission's recommendation came out pretty late in the budget process april 26th i think was the date uh and so because they only have a limited number of times they can like have different versions of the budget, they just ended up not including it in there, which which is okay, sure. Uh, but if you just look at historical data from the Salary Commission's history, the recommendation always comes out during this time period. And so I think really uh, the bigger reason is that council members uh, Cordero and Wire, they didn't actually agree with the raises, and so or at least they didn't want to take action to support them at that period of time. And so this was one lever of power that they had to use to not uh, support the raises. And then your story notes that um, the sole discretion for moving money around in the budgets lays with uh, the council chair, Tommy Waters. Yes, for the legislative budget, it lays with uh, council chair Tommy Waters. And so when I called and asked uh, council member Cordero and council member Wire, who are you know the leaders of the budget committee, they actually didn't know where it would, how these funds would be moved around in the legislative budget. Which I think intuitively you would think that they would, just because they are on the budget committee and like lead it. But uh, they are completely correct that council chair Waters is the one who has the sole discretion, and so theoretically. He's the one who can decide with or without his fellow council members. Um, something that council member Cordero mentioned, though, was she thinks that uh, he'll be pretty open and collaborative, just from what she can tell, I guess, of having been a staffer for the council before and now being an actual member of the council. She sees this current council and, I guess, Chair Waters' approach as being more collaborative than maybe it was in the past. So she's expecting there to be conversation about it. Okay. We just don't know what is going to happen yet. Right. And so, you know, the big question is, yeah, will the, the there be city services cut or are they going to just try and use some of the money in the budget savings, right? Because they've got a lot of money left over uh, for open positions. So, yeah, an interesting issue to track. Um, but thank you so much, Ben. Of course. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. We've been talking to Ben Engram with today's Reality Check. To read his story on this issue and weigh in, visit civilbeat.org. Hawaii's herbivore fish populations in our ocean waters is the focus of a new public awareness campaign. It's entitled Fish Pono, 
save our reefs. Organizers say these fish help ensure the health of our coral reefs by eating algae and seaweed that potentially suffocate and kill coral. Among the campaign's ambassadors are Master Navigator Nainoa Thompson and Champion Spearfisher uh, Kimmy Werner. Also on that list is Papahanaumokuakea research ecologist Randy Kosaki, who is also an avid freediver and spearfisher. The Conversations Russell Subiano talked to Kosaki about why the campaign is needed. I'm sure it's not news to most people that we're facing a major existential crisis in the form of climate change, and it's going to affect every ecosystem on Earth, but especially our coral reefs, which are near and dear to those of us who grew up here in Hawaii. We grew up going to the beach, sitting on coral sands, eating reef fish. So our coral reefs are really an integral part of our society here in Hawaii, and yet they're under great threat from climate change. With rising sea surface temperatures and global warming, Coral bleaching becomes a possibility when the water gets too warm. And if the bleaching and warm water go on for too long, those corals can die. And at that point, it's really important to have a healthy stock of herbivorous fishes. So these are the vegetarian fishes that eat algae. They don't eat meat. They, you know, they're herbivores. And they eat the algae so that if we ever have a climate-related event, like a mass coral bleaching event where a lot of our coral dies, or a major hurricane, which is also driven by global warming, you know, in order for our coral reefs to recover, it's really important that we have these lawnmowers on the reef to keep the coral reef clean and relatively free from algae so that new corals can start to grow. And so these herbivorous fishes are really important to the ongoing health of our corals. This is especially true in an era of climate change when we're at risk of losing a lot of our corals. And corals are critically important to those of us that enjoy reefs, especially for the fish that really enjoy these reefs. Corals create their habitat. It creates their homes. And so we need to protect the organisms that create coral reefs for the sake and for the health of all of the inhabitants of that coral reef, including the fishes that we know and love. I don't think I have heard someone say herbivorous before. Yeah, well, it's vegetarian. They're <laughs> yeah. vegan fishes, basically. When we talk about herbivore fish populations, we're talking about fish like uhu or parrotfish, nenui, kole, manini, kala, and a bunch of other surgeon fish. What are we seeing in terms of how these species are fished? Well, compared to their pre-fish levels, some of the abundances of these fish that we love are down to between 5 and 10% of their original stocks. So we've already done a fair amount of damage. I mean, it certainly is not unrecoverable. And this is not a message of no fishing. It's not don't fish. It's just fish responsibly. You know, it doesn't mean don't eat uhu or don't eat kole. But think long and hard before you take more than you need. You know, take what you need for yourself and your family today. And that leaves fish on the reef for tomorrow. And maybe most importantly, that leaves lawnmowers on the reef to keep our reefs healthy. And this way, we can ensure that we can, in perpetuity, continue to harvest and enjoy these fishes as, as aesthetic you know, wonders on the reef or as food sources or both. This really is sort of a long-term look at the survival of our reef. Truly, it's really it's survival of our own society because the ocean is sort of a mirror that reflects the health of our society. When our oceans are struggling, that means we are also struggling. And it's not too late to turn this around. So really, it's on us as fishers. We have it completely within our power to kind of turn this around, make sure that we fish sustainably so that we have coral reefs for our children and for their grandchildren. Are we seeing this just here on Oahu, or are we seeing it across our state? Well, to varying degrees, it's across our state, across at least the inhabited portions of our state. Oahu is probably our most heavily populated or overpopulated island. And so our impacts on coral reefs and reef fisheries are most pronounced on Oahu. On the other hand, we have places like Papahanaumokuakea or the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands, 
where virtually no fishing goes on. And that's where we can see what a fully intact, functioning coral reef ecosystem looks like with all of its component parts in place doing what they're supposed to. You know, with large schools of monini, large schools of parrotfish, keeping the algae down. So algae is pretty hard to come by in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. And that's a good sign. That's a healthy reef. If those reefs ever experience a coral bleaching and coral bleaching mortality event, there's a very good chance that with that many herbivorous fishes around, they'll keep the algae down until the corals can recover, which might be quite a few years for those reefs to recover. But the lawnmowers of the reef will keep it healthy so new corals can grow. And it's not just the fishes, right? It's vana or sea urchins that are important as well. I think when a lot of people see vana on the reef, I think, you know, it's always a kind of a scary reaction because of the kind of harm they can do to a person. In terms of reef ecology, they are very important and sounds like just as important as reef fish. Yeah, that's exactly correct. In fact, the vana may be even more important than reef fish when it comes to keeping down alien species of algae, or these are non-native species that have somehow made their way to Hawaii, sometimes accidentally, sometimes through deliberate introduction. But alien species especially overgrow our native reefs because they're not a normal food source for our native herbivores. So you're absolutely right that some of these non-fish herbivores like vana or sea urchins are also not just good at keeping the reefs clean, but they're also a little less selective than reef fish in that they'll eat pretty much anything, even algae they haven't, quote-unquote, seen before or experienced before. So they're also especially good at keeping down introduced species of algae, which can be an extreme problem. Are we seeing sort of the same low stock numbers as we are seeing it with the reef fish? You know, I honestly don't know if anyone does surveys of vana from a fishery perspective, but my guess would be that their numbers are a bit diminished, but not nearly to the same degree that fin fish are, like coral reef fish. As you pointed out, most people kind of stay away from vana. You know, they'll keep their distance from something that porky, whereas fishes are much more appetizing looking, you know. So I think fishes probably get hit more than vana, but I wouldn't stake my reputation on that. And you're a part of this new public awareness campaign, Fish Pono, Save Our Reefs. Can you share some of the recommendations of the campaign that are meant to help save Hawaii's reef? First off, fish pono. In short, it really means fishing responsibly with an eye on the future of these coral reefs in the hopes that if we live a little more in balance with nature, you know, we'll be able to ensure healthy reefs, healthy fisheries, and abundant marine life for all future generations. The fish pono really is a grassroots effort on a part of a growing ohana of ocean users. And these include watermen and women, fishers, scientists, basically ocean lovers who all care very deeply about the future of our Hawaiian reefs. And really the most important take-home message is it's not an anti-fishing message. To be really clear, we're all fishers. We love to catch fish. We love to eat fish. But the most important take-home message, I think, is fish only what you need to feed yourself and your ohana today. You know, don't fish to fill your freezer. Fish in your freezer is not doing anything till you eat it next month. Whereas a fish left in the ocean will continue to eat algae. It'll continue to spawn. It'll continue to do its job as a fish on the reef. And so really the most important message is to take only what you need. Secondary to that would be maybe if you don't really need more than one uhu, then don't take more than one uhu. Or same for any of the herbivores like kole or nenue. You know, don't take more than you need. Again, this is not an anti-fishing thing because we all love to fish. And the purpose of this initiative is to ensure that we can continue fishing in perpetuity. So my children and their children and their grandchildren even can continue to fish if we today kind of are moderate in terms of what we take and don't take more than what we need. So it's really a fairly simple message, and it's don't take more than you need. 
think about future generations, think about the health of the reef, and think about what you're doing and how you might be impacting the health of that reef. And then it's pretty easy to make the right decision. And going back to the Uhu specifically, the Uhu also impacts our beaches as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Uhu, white chunks of coral, they digest the algae that's in it. They grind it up so they can digest it. And the rest of it comes out the back end as sand. And so Uhu are basically sand-making machines. Hawaii Visitors Bureau should feature Uhu as one of their poster children. You know, for white sand beaches in Hawaii, most of that came out the back end of an Uhu. And so even in a non-consumption, non-food set, these animals are very important, not just for perpetuating a reef, but they're also important in terms of creating reef resources that our visitors and locals alike enjoy. Like basically white sand beaches are also the products of some of these rivers fish. Randy, thanks so much for talking to me today. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. And that was research ecologist and avid fisherman Randy Kosaki talking to HBR's Russell Subiono about Fish Pono, Save Our Reefs, a new public awareness campaign. We'll have a link to recommendations to help protect Hawaii's reefs on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Think you've got the chops to be on the air? HPR is looking for a new part-time host for our late-night music program, Bridging the Gap. Candidates should have a basic understanding of radio broadcasting, be comfortable with public speaking, perform well under pressure, and love music, of course. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. are just coming off the 4th of July, and it was 47 years ago on that day that Hokulea set sail from Tahiti to Hawaii on its maiden voyage of, of rediscovery. HBR reporter Catherine Kluett-Pactel joins us to reflect on that anniversary of returning home on that, from that journey. Good morning. Good morning from Molokai. Yes, and so tell us, who did you talk to for this story? So I spoke with um, Penny Rollins-Martin. She's a member, as you said, of Hokulea's original voyage back in 1976. And she shared reflections um, on the 47th anniversary of that voyage, which, as you said, was yesterday. And that voyage was really historic um, from Hawaii to Tahiti and back because it, it really represented proof that early Polynesians could sail across the ocean without the use of modern navigation tools. So instead they used the stars and their environmental observations to guide them across the open ocean. And it was nearly 3,000 miles each way. And she shared how she was selected for this incredible opportunity. She comes from a Molokai family of paddlers. And early on, she found her place in paddling when she was young. And when Hokulea first launched in 1975, 
she said the canoe sailed around Hawaii and it was stopping in each island to introduce um, the this voyaging canoe to Hawaii and scout for potential crew members. And so they stopped on Molokai for a week or so. And they were talking, taking people out, uh, sailing on the canoe. And she said her brothers went out, lots of others went out, and she kept watching. But she thought that they wouldn't take women. And so she didn't realize that it was Hokulea's last day on Molokai. And she finally asked if she could go on. And they were like, of course, <laughs> of course you can. And she remembered uh, going on and touching every single part of the canoe and just asking a million questions. And when it was time to pick the crew, there was a crew nomination committee um, that had selected mostly men, but one woman, Kiani Reiner. And they said, no, no, we can't just take one. We have to take two wahine for this, for this original crew. And someone said, you know, I've got one more in mind. And so Penny Martin got a call early one morning and it was Kimo Hugo, one of the original, other original crew members. And he said, how would you like to go to Tahiti? And she said, when? <laughs> and so she was uh, the crew of the return voyage from Tahiti to Hawaii. And she was already in Tahiti when Hukulea arrived on June 4th. And there were about 15,000 people waiting on the beach and she shared what it was like to witness the canoe approaching that day. We're waiting on the beach and I'm standing on the sand and then all of a sudden I find myself standing in the water up to my waist because there were so many people and they just kept on crowding and crowding us into the ocean, yeah? And then Hoklea comes in and, you know, I always say this, that it rounds the, the point and it's coming in and, and you can't mistake it for anything else. Those crab claw sails, the two hulls, it's Hoklea. And the people just started wailing and crying and, lifting up their arms and calling the canoe in. And, and then, you know, you look around you and you go, yeah, this is one of the places that I'm from. You know, this is who we are. This is our roots. We're with our people, you know? Yeah, it's incredible. And then the other things that we heard that they spoke in was like, welcome home. Where have you been? We've been waiting over 200 years for you to come home, you know? I get teary just talking about it. They were so grateful that we did that, that we came home and brought this home to them. Yeah, I mean, that was just a chicken skin, you know, hearing her describe that scene so vivid in her mind. You know, and, and uh, you know, the Hawaiians, you know, a, a nod to the, the Marshallese, right, because they learned a navigation from uh, um, uh, one of the last navigators out there uh, in, in Micronesia and learned how to pack ulu, right, breadfruit in the canoes for the long journey. So, yeah, it, it just is amazing. It was, and I mean, I was getting teared up talking to her because it was just her describing that moment was just so emotional. And so for the next month, the crew traveled around Tahiti and they were warmly welcomed and they stocked up on food and packs for that return trip. And the canoe spent some time on the dry dock for some minor repairs. And she said they made so many friends and when it was time to go, they just weren't ready to leave. <laughs> but after that month in Tahiti, it was time to sail back to Hawaii. On July 4th, we left at 12 o'clock. Went to church in the morning. I remember walking down from the church to the dock and all the people in Papaete walking with us. And, you know, everybody came to say goodbye. They were hugging us and giving us little gifts. And speaking of the gifts, when we hit the equator, I didn't realize it's such a big deal to cross the equator, you know. And it's weird, too, because, you know, the equator, there's not a sign that says equator, no crossing, right? It's just the, the captain and the navigator knew. It's like something that you pay attention to and you acknowledge. And 
So we got to the equator and oh, it was the captain's birthday. And we were all out on deck. And I remembered that one of those gifts that the people gave me when we left was a can of almond roca. I had it down in my storage, you know. So I went down and I got it and I brought it a special occasion, right? And everybody's like, oh my God, chocolate. And then, you know, we had this very big ceremony for the equator and saying happy birthday to the captain and had our almond roca. And I remember just like licking that little foil and <laughs> you know, like savoring that little morsel of almond roca. whole best almond roca in the whole world. I love that little bit of detail. It just takes you to that moment, right? All your senses. It does. And she talked about, speaking of senses, the roar of the wind uh, as they were crossing this open ocean was just ever-present. And sometimes she said she just wanted to turn it off to have a moment of quiet. And she was actually seasick most of the trip. Uh, so she'd be steering and have to ask another crew member to come over so she could go throw up for a minute. Or she'd be cooking and say, hey, can you watch this pot while I go throw up? But she, she just talked about how much she was so grateful to be there. And despite these adversities, um, which just loved the experience. And as they approached Hawaii, they passed um, Hawaii Island and passed Maui. And along the north shore of Molokai, along the, the valleys and the sea cliffs, there was big big celebration planned for them on Oahu a day early, earlier than planned. And they told them they had to wait till the next day to sail to Oahu. So they were right by Kalapapa, and they decided to anchor overnight in Kalapapa's harbor. So we pull in, and my auntie was working down there, and came out, and she was like, come, baby, come, you know, hooey, come, come. And, and it was just so wonderful for me, coming from Molokai. This is our first landing. This is a historical landing, you know. So uh, we so wanted to go on land, and, and all of the people wanted us to come on land too, but it was too late to get a customs agent over to Molokai, and we just come from a foreign country, so. <laughs> but the people could come on. And they did. And they brought with them their um, <clears throat> beverages and food to share and their music that they shared and their tears. And they were just so grateful that we brought the canoe to them. You know, where they're usually forgotten. Most of the times everything is just sail past. But we came in and made them part of this historic voyage. And that created a friendship which is, is still going on today. The canoe tries to go back as often as it can. Oh, that's a lovely thought. Just you know, thinking of that memory. It is, and you know, forty-seven years later, the canoe is still a really important part of her life. She coaches um, paddling, has won international paddling races, and she works as a culturally based environmental educator. And she talked about the measures of success of being able to take her experience and the lessons that she learned and, and apply it to what we need to do to Aloha Aina. And she talked about those lessons, being careful with your water and food on the, on the va'a and sharing a small space and really being able to take those into the classroom and be able to share them with today's youth uh, in her teaching job is really special for her. Yes, and, and you think that uh, the Hokulea is, you know, on another voyage now up in Alaska, and we wish them, you know, uh, Godspeed and safe travels. But thank you so much, uh, Catherine, uh, for bringing this uh, to our memory, to the forefront. Thank you. We have been uh, hearing from uh, 
Catherine Cluett-Pactall. She was talking to us about a hokulea memory of long ago. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, and we apologize. We've had some technical difficulties. Some of our equipment seems to be still on holiday time, but uh, hopefully we are back on track. And we now go to this week's Manu Minute. University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart introduces us to an endangered native bird with a singular call and an unusual crest. Koe are the largest honeycreepers remaining in Maui Nui and are just a spectacular bird. Measuring about seven inches from bill to tail, they're mostly shiny black, but their feathers are tipped in orange, silver, and white to give them a beautiful speckled appearance. They also have bright orange necks and a very unusual fluffy white crest on their forehead, which is where their English name, Crested Honeycreeper, comes from. Why they have this crest, no one really knows. One possibility is it helps attract the opposite sex, but another more likely possibility is it makes them better at dispersing pollen between the many flowers they visit throughout the day. Like many other Hawaiian birds, the name Akoekoe may come from some of the many sounds that they make. If you use your imagination, sound a little bit like their name. Koekoe once ranged throughout Maui and Molokai, but today are only found in a relatively small patch of wet forest high up on the side of Haleakala volcano. With less than 2,000 birds left, they're considered to be critically endangered. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to protecting endangered birds and plants on Hawaii Island. More about helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Well, we're out of time now, but up tomorrow, we plan to learn about Hawaiian moonshine made from tea leaves. Got a story about that? Leave some feedback on our Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or you can email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find our archived shows online on our website or head to Spotify or Apple or wherever else you find your podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.